0: The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the Acts of the Apostles in the second chapter and the twelfth verse. The twelfth verse in the second chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? And they were all amazed. And were in doubt saying one to another, what meaneth this? It seems to me that the best way in which we can consider that great and notable event which happened on that day of Pentecost at Jerusalem so long ago, and the account of which is to be found in this second chapter of this book of the Acts of the Apostles, is to look at it in the light of that question which was put by a number of people who happened to be up at the great religious festival that was being observed and celebrated at that time in the city of Jerusalem. Now, here I say is the question that focuses attention on the entire incident and which will help us, therefore, to come to an understanding as to why it is that this Sunday, Whit Sunday as we call it, is traditionally observed in the church as the anniversary of the day on which this notable and remarkable event took place. So often we use these terms, talk about Christmas, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, Whit Sunday, and so on without uh, quite realizing why we do so. And obviously that is not right. What is this day? What does it mean? What does it represent? What does it tell us? Well, I say the best way to look at that is to ask this very question. What meaneth this? What is this thing that happened there on that first Sunday, if you may so like uh, to to term it? Well now Peter, the Apostle Peter, you remember, got up and he addressed the crowd. And what he really did was to answer that very question. There were some mockers, we, were, we are told, who standing by said, These men are full of new wine. They said, These men are drunk. This is just sure drunkenness. Because these apostles and others upon whom the Holy Spirit had come, were undoubtedly in a state of ecstasy. They were filled with joy, and they were speaking in these various languages, so that all these people gathered together were able to hear them speaking in their own tongues, in their own languages. The more serious people put the question, what meaneth this? The others, the superficial, said, oh, they're just drunk. And the apostle, you remember, deals with the situation. He can easily prove that it wasn't a question of drunkenness. The very hour of the day in and of itself made that quite impossible. But he doesn't stop at that, of course, and goes on to give them a positive exposition. Very well, what does it all lead to? The first thing we have to say is this, that we are considering together something which has happened in history. This is an historical event. We are not uh, simply calling attention to some story or to some figment of the imagination or merely some tradition which may have or may not have a very tenuous uh, connection with the historical facts and events. The first thing that we must be quite clear about is that this is something which belongs to history. Now, that doesn't, uh, of course, only apply to this fact. All the facts in the New Testament belong to history. Christianity, as we must constantly uh, continue to point out, uh, Christianity is not a philosophy. It's not just a view of life. It's not just a kind of concept. Uh, Christianity is primarily the record of a series of events and effects which have taken place in this world. Now, this event uh, belongs to that series, as I'm going to show you, and it belongs uh, to that category. Uh, What is recorded here in the second chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles is sheer history. It's as definite a bit of history as is the fact that Julius Caesar uh, conquered this country in B.C. 55 or 54, whichever it was. Now, it belongs to the same order. It's something that happened in history after that date on which Julius Caesar conquered this country. And I'm stressing this and emphasizing this for this good reason, that if this had not literally and actually taken place, if this wasn't real and true history, Well, we wouldn't be here in this building at this moment, for there wouldn't be a Christian church. This is, in a sense, the inauguration of the Christian church. The Christian church, which has come down to us uh, through the running centuries, began really at this point. It is here that the church, as we know her, really began to function. So, you see what an important fact this really is. And we must hold on to it, I say, as a literal fact. Now, I haven't time to stay with this this evening, but it would be a very simple thing for me to prove uh, this uh, contention of mine that there would never have been a Christian church were it not for this. You remember what these apostles and disciples were like after our Lord's crucifixion? And how after his resurrection he appeared unto them and spoke to them and taught them. But still they were in no condition to start the Christian church and to do what they actually did do. Now this is the thing that alone explains that. This tremendous thing happened. Here were these apostles and the 120 in an upper room. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a mighty rushing wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now that, I say, is a sheer bit of history. And if it didn't happen, there would never have been a Christian church. Oh, I know that there are people who dispute this. As they dispute the resurrection, as they dispute the incarnation, and as they dispute everything else. But you see, there's nothing modern in doing that. There were people in Jerusalem nearly 2,000 years ago who said, these men are drunk. So it's not the hallmark of modernity to fail to recognize truth and facts. No, no, this thing happened. What we are considering here is not uh, some misunderstanding of what happened. Alas, I am ashamed to say it. I read even in a church newspaper this week a statement to this effect. That what happened here was that the atmosphere was very heavy and oppressive. The sun can be very powerful in Palestine And there everything was oppressive and everybody felt sad and dejected, as we all tend to do in such weather. But suddenly there came a delightful breeze, and the atmosphere lifted, and the sun began to shine more brightly and to cast shadows. Can you explain the Christian church and her story on such a theory? Is that likely to have led to this extraordinary scene that was enacted in Jerusalem? Would that have produced a crowd? Simply the fact that a number of people who felt heavy and lethargic and weary and sleepy and tired suddenly began to feel a little bit fresh. It's not surprising that the Christian church is as she is when you get that in church organs. My friends, this is a fact. This thing happened and first amazed and astounded the people in the upper room and then proceeded to astound everybody else and to shake the city of Jerusalem. This, I say, is history. That's the first thing we've got to lay hold on. But it isn't merely that. There's another thing. This thing that happened, as the Apostle Peter proceeds to point out, is a fulfillment of prophecy. Peter, standing up with the others, lifted up his voice and said unto them, You men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose... Uh, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. The thing is monstrous. Use your senses. Uh, pull yourselves together. How can it possibly be drunkenness? The very hour of the day precludes the possibility. It isn't that. Well, what is it? But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he proceeds, you remember, uh, to quote a passage uh, from the second chapter of the book of the prophet Joel. Well, now then, I take up this principle. This thing which happened there on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem is a fulfillment of prophecy. It's not only prophesied by Joel. You'll find it prophesied by Isaiah. You'll find it prophesied in Ezekiel. Indeed, you'll find it prophesied way back in the book of Leviticus. You will find there that God gave Moses instruction with regard to the observance of certain feasts. And amongst these feasts that they were to observe was the feast which was called the Feast of Pentecost. And it was because the Feast of Pentecost was being held at that time that all these different people had come up. The Parthians and the Medes and the Elamites and the dwellers in Mesopotamia and people from Rome, Jews from all over the world gravitated to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and the Feast of Pentecost, because they had been commended to do so. It was one of the great feasts of the ancient nation of Israel. And uh, what I am indicating is that that actual Feast of Pentecost was one of the ways in which God had foretold and had prophesied this very thing that happened in Jerusalem on this notable day of Pentecost. So you see, it's important that we should bear that in mind for this reason. This is not just an odd event. This is not just something that happened. This is not just something that happened accidentally. Well, what is it? Well, it's a part of God's great plan of redemption. Which he himself had foretold right through the Old Testament in differing ways as I've just been indicating to you. Indeed, this thing that happened there on the day of Pentecost is the last of a great series of events and actions, historical events and actions, by means of which God was providing a way to save mankind. That's exactly what it is. It is the last of the great series of Acts in connection especially with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now that is the whole secret of understanding what happened at Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. You are familiar with the great events, aren't you? The New Testament is really a record of them. I mean the Gospels and this book of Acts. Now that every one of them being foretold. Men had fallen into sin, and God had pronounced judgment. But he'd also promised deliverance. And then he began to give them indications as to how the deliverance was going to come. As I'm never tired of repeating, it's all in a nutshell in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. There it is. Then God proceeds to unfold it, a bit here and a bit there. You can trace it right through the whole of the Old Testament. But they're all just pointing forward to this series of climactic, crucial events which are recorded here in the Gospels and in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. What are they? Well, the first of them, of course, is the coming of John the Baptist. It had been foretold that when the Messiah was about to come, there would be a forerunner. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, uh, saith your God. A voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. That's Isaiah 40, isn't it? You see the juxtaposition of the two things. How are we to know when the comfort is coming? How are we to know when salvation is about to dawn? Ah, the forerunner, the voice in the wilderness, John the Baptist, will come first. There's the first big event, therefore after four hundred years of silence. For there was no prophet after Malachi for four hundred long years. And the nation was waiting, and no word came from God. But suddenly this man arises. The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Something's happening. God has raised up a man. There's the first event. And then the series follows. And I'm not going to stay with them this evening, but it's important we should see exactly what happened at Pentecost. The first mighty event was Bethlehem. The birth of a babe in a stable to a virgin called Mary. Jesus, the babe that was laid in the manger. That's a fact. That's an event. That's the mightiest event in history. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. God has entered into time. God has taken unto himself human nature in his Son. What an event. Staggering. There it is. There's the first of this particular series. And then go on, but let me hurry to the crucial ones. Calvary. The death on the cross. How he was taken, condemned... Nailed in helplessness to the tree. Calvary, the death of this Jesus. What an event. There he is, the creator of the universe, dying and expiring. And he dies. These are events. And then the mighty event and fact of the resurrection. How uh, he burst us under the bends of death and r- arose triumphant o'er the grave. It happened, my friend. He literally came out of the grave. The grave was empty. They found the clothes, but not the person. He'd risen. The body had disappeared. What an event. What a shattering event. The rising again of the Son of God who had died in the flesh. The resurrection. What an event. And then his ascension. From that mountain top in the sight of his chosen disciples, he was taken up into heaven and disappeared. These are the events, and then this event. Here is the last of the mighty events. Here is the last of this great and extraordinary series the sending of the Holy Ghost, the coming down of the third person in the Trinity. God, the Holy Spirit, being poured out upon the infant church. Now, there, I say, is the way to approach this, this event in history, this great fact. It's the last of a series of actions which God has taken in connection with our salvation. And every one of them had been prophesied. And if you take the trouble to go back into your books of Exodus and of Leviticus, this is what you'll find that it was there prophesied that the Feast of Pentecost was to be 50 days after the crucifixion and resurrection. Exactly that length of time. And if you like to come to your New Testament and then work it out, you'll find that it's the exact difference in time, in days, between the death and resurrection and the coming down of the Holy Ghost. Why have I taken the trouble to remind you of these facts? My answer, my dear friend, is just this. This is one of those mighty proofs of the fact that this book which I have in front of me is the Word of God. That this is no ordinary book, that this is not the book of men, that this is not merely a record of what men have thought of God or their attempt to to interpret their experiences of God. No, no. This is God's book. This is God revealing himself. And so, centuries before the events happened, God said they're going to happen. And therefore, Pentecost is one of the great and mighty proofs of the fact that the Bible is the word of God and that you and I, therefore, should listen to it, that we should pay heed to its message, that we should realize that this is no ordinary word, but that it is God speaking to us. Have you listened to it? Do you know its message? Are you aware of what it has to say? The day of Pentecost as a fulfillment of prophecy is, I say, a substantiating of the fact that the Bible is indeed God's word to man to which we must listen for our very soul's sake. That's the first thing. But let me come to a second thing. What happened on the day of Pentecost is not only a proof of the fact that the Old Testament is the word of God, it is equally a proof of the claims that the Lord Jesus Christ made for himself and his person. Now this is of tremendous significance. This day of Pentecost proved again in a final manner that Jesus of Nazareth was what he claimed to be the only begotten Son of God. That's the heart of the gospel, isn't it? What is this gospel? Is it my views on war or peace or bombs? Not at all. It's primarily this. That God hath visited and redeemed his people. That something has happened which had never happened before. That God the Son has come out of heaven and has entered into time and has lived in this world. That Jesus is Son of God. That's the gospel. Now I say this day of Pentecost is one of the final proofs of that. How does it prove it? Well, it proves it in this way. You go back and read those Old Testament prophecies about the coming of the Holy Spirit, and you will find that they always tell us that the Holy Spirit was going to be sent by the Messiah, by the Great One who was going to come to deliver the people. Always the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit is associated, I say, with the coming of the Messiah. And therefore, the sending of the Holy Spirit by Jesus, the Son of God, is the proof that He is the Messiah. But wait, I can add to that. If you go through your Gospels and read what our Lord himself said, you'll find that he said this kind of thing. He tells his disciples who are crestfallen and unhappy when he announces his departure and his death. He tells them not to be downcast, that he's going to send them another comforter. He tells them in John chapters 14, 15, and 16, That he is going to send this third person in the blessed Holy Trinity to them. He makes it perfectly plain. If I go away, I will send him unto you. He committed himself. He stated it quite explicitly. He says, I am the Son of God, and I'm going back to the Father. He'll give me the gift, and I will send the gift upon you. Now, he staked his whole reputation upon it. Indeed, you remember that after the resurrection, he did the same thing again. You'll find it in the first chapter of this book of the Acts of the Apostles. We read in chapter, in verse four, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. Not many days hence. Then he said this again. He said, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, you see, the thing is absolutely explicit. He said, stay where you are. I'm in a few days' time going to send the Holy Spirit upon you. So he goes on repeating it. What he is really saying is this. I am going to prove to you that I am the Messiah and the Son of God. And I'm going to prove it in that way. God has been promising throughout the centuries a great gift to mankind, the gift of his Spirit. He says he's going to give it through the Messiah. I am telling you that I am going to send the gift. He had said this also to them. He said, when he, the Holy Spirit, is come, he shall reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. He says there I'll prove to them that they're wrong because I'm going to send the Spirit and that proves that I am the Son of God. So you see the crucial importance of this event that happened on the day of Pentecost? It is the final proof of the fact that he is what he claimed to be, the only begotten Son of God who had entered into this world and time in order to rescue and to redeem the world. If he hadn't sent the Holy Spirit, his claims would have fallen to the ground. Though he had actually risen from the dead. But here his claim is proved, his promise is vindicated. He is the one he says he is. He is God the Son. And he has given the gift of the Spirit, having received it himself from the Father. He that ascended is the same also that descended, first says Paul, into the lowest parts of the earth. He has ascended upon high. He has given gifts unto men. It is a positive proof that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. But, thirdly and lastly, it is this. It is the first clear, definite, and explicit exposition of the way of salvation. The Holy Spirit was sent in order that he might mediate and apply to mankind The salvation that had now become possible through the work of the Son of God, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so what you've got in this chapter is an account of how he began to do that. This is the business of the church. The Holy Spirit uses the church in order to save, and he began doing it there on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. What is this way of salvation? How does he do it? How is it brought to pass? How can a world that is steeped in sin and shame and ignorance and unbelief, how can it be brought to a knowledge of God? How can it be forgiven? How can it be delivered from its sin and the thraldom and the tyranny of sin? How can it happen? Well, the answer is given here. The Holy Spirit began to do it even through the preaching of a man like this Apostle Peter. And what do we find? Well, what we find is this. We first of all are brought face to face with his mighty power. The Apostle Peter was addressing a company of people who but a few weeks before, when Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, had asked them whether he should release unto them Jesus of Nazareth, or somebody else persisted in crying out and saying, Not Jesus, but Barabbas. He's addressing people who'd been shouting and saying, Away with him, crucify him. And you notice that as he spoke to them, something began to happen to them. What was it? Well, it was this work of the Holy Spirit, this power of the Spirit that was dealing with them. Peter couldn't. Peter was a very ordinary man and a very nervous, frightened man. But here he's speaking with authority and power The Peter who but a few weeks before denied his Lord in order to save his life and his skin, stands up before the hostile mob and defies their very authorities and powers and proclaims the name of this Jesus whom formerly he had denied. What is this? This is the power of the Holy Spirit in him. And this is the influence of the Spirit ever since in the church. No man has ever become a Christian without the influence and the power of this Holy Spirit of God upon him. Yes, says Oliver Goldsmith, fools who came to scoff remained to pray. What had happened to them? The Holy Spirit had laid hold upon them. The Spirit that took hold of these people listening to Peter is the Spirit that has taken hold of men throughout the running centuries. And that is what makes the work of the church a miracle. It was the same Spirit that dealt with the men like Saul of Tarsus. It's the same Spirit that has dealt with all men who once have been haters of Christ and his gospel and haters of the church and has turned them into saints. It's this power of the Spirit, the power of God, the Holy Spirit, the power that can create anew. He descends and he works. And what is his work? Well, you notice that his primary work is a work of convicting of sin. You see, Peter stood up and he spoke about Jesus Christ. He said, you took him in with cruel hands. You have killed him and murdered him. But he's risen again from the dead. And as Peter went on speaking, he finally brought it to a climax in these words. He said, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly That God hath made that same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And then I read this. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and unto the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? They're desperate, they're crying out for help, what's happened to them? Oh, I say the explanation is that they have become convicted of sin. Peter, you see, has quoted the prophet Joel, and Joel says, when these great days come, amongst other things, this will happen, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And these men are beginning to call on the name of the Lord. Why have they done so? What's the matter? Well, the answer is that they are convicted of sin. These people who are so self-satisfied at the beginning of the sermon, they begin to say, what shall we do? What's happened to them, I say? They've come under conviction. Conviction of sin. What does that mean, says someone? Well, let me try and tell you very briefly what it means. They began to feel that they were guilty before God. They crucified that Jesus. They hadn't recognized him. They thought he was but a carpenter and an imposter. But now they can see that he has risen from the dead. And he sent forth this. And these men are speaking in strange languages. They can't explain it. There's only one explanation. This Jesus whom they cried against. He's son of God. What fools they were. How blind they must have been. They are conscious of their sin. Men and brethren, what shall we do? They were confronted, you see, by a manifestation of the power of God. And in the presence of this manifestation of the power of God, they began to feel and to know their own sinfulness. God. They would not live to his glory. They'd gone their own way. So blind were they that they didn't recognize his son. They'd failed to keep his commandments. They hadn't understood his scriptures. They hadn't seen the meaning of the prophets and all their glorious prophecies. They've been living as if there wasn't a God and as if God had never done anything at all that this great series had never taken place. And they begin to realize what a terrible thing it is. They have lived to please themselves, not to please God. They are sinners in the sight of God. And they begin to see that they are such because there is within them a sinful nature. That they are so blinded by this twisted, perverted nature produced by sin that they couldn't recognize the Son of God when he stood before them. And when they even saw him dying and expiring on the cross, it meant nothing. They wagged their heads and mocked at him and jeered at him and spat in his face and said, If thou be the Son of God, save thyself, come down from the cross. And now it all comes back to them, the blindness and the horror of it all. What shall we do, they say? What had happened to them? Oh, that's the Holy Spirit convincing them and convicting them of sin, as the Lord Jesus Christ himself had prophesied that he would do. But this, you see, is the way of salvation. Whosoever calleth upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What makes a man call on the name of the Lord? Well, it is that he sees he is hopeless, no man calls on the name of the Lord until he realizes that he is a sinner. Have you called on the name of the Lord? Have you ever realized you are a desperate plight? Have you ever had a second's worry about yourself and your own soul? Is all well with you? Are you ready to die and to meet God in the judgment? Have you lived to the glory of God all the days of your life? You were created in order to do that. God made men for himself. The chief end of men is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The first and the greatest commandment, says the Son of God, is, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind and all thy strength. Have you done it? He'll ask you in the day of judgment. He made you for that. Do you know of God? Are you enjoying the life of God? Are you living to the glory of God? If not, you're a sinner, a vile sinner, and you're under the judgment of God, and you'll go to hell if you die in that state. Have you realize that? It's people who realize that who cry out unto the Lord. They realize, Father, that they are like that because Over this devastating thing that the fall of men has done, that their natures are vile and rotten and twisted and perverted, that we are creatures of lusts and desires and passions, and that we hate God. And here we are, and what can we do? We suddenly realize it, and we'll say we're trying to get, we'll try to get better, but we can't. We are desperate. We are convicted of sin. You see, sin is not primarily a matter of actions. It's a matter of our relationship to God. You can be a highly respectable person and yet the greatest sinner in the world. For a sinner is a man who doesn't live entirely to the glory of God. That's what a sinner is. Very well, then, that's the first thing, conviction of sin. But then, you see, this next thing comes in, whosoever calleth on the name of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, this is just an explicit way of stating the way of salvation. The man who becomes a Christian, the man who is saved, is the man who, having realized that he thus is a sinner in the sight of God, realizes further that he can do nothing at all about saving himself. His first impulse is, of course, to pull himself together, to start reading the Bible, praying, doing good, leaving sin, taking up something else. He's going to make himself a Christian. He's going to reconcile himself with God. Well, of course, if he does that, he doesn't call on the name of the Lord, does he? He's calling on himself. But that isn't the man who's saved. Whosoever calleth on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What's it mean? Oh, it means this. You see, it's the answer the people who gave, the answer Peter gave to the people who asked him the question. Men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? Shall I enter into a a convent? Shall I become a monk? Shall I become a hermit or an anchorite? Shall I give the whole of my life to fasting and sweating and praying? No, no, it will never save you. Call on the name of the Lord. What's that? Repent, repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus for remission of sins. That's calling on the name of the Lord. What's it mean? It means this that you realize that you are a sinner of such a die in the presence of God that you can do literally nothing about yourself at all. You're not only lost, but you're helpless. You are utterly hopeless. What can you do? There is only one way of salvation, says Peter, and Joel had prophesied it. There as you are in the dregs and in the failure... All you can do is to cry out, to call on the name of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, it means, says Peter, that you acknowledge and confess your sin to God. That's repentance. That you stop trying to excuse yourself. You stop trying to explain your life away. You stop trying to put yourself right. You say, No, I have sinned. I'm a desperate sinner. I'm hopeless. Repent, confess it, acknowledge it. And what then? Well, call in the name of the Lord. Believe the message that Jesus of Nazareth is none other than the only begotten Son of God. And that he came into this world in order to save you. That that's the whole explanation of all the great series of events that the problem of sin was as great as this. I say it with reverence, that even the Almighty God in heaven couldn't save us and deliver us by mere mere word. There was only one way whereby men could be saved, and that was the way that God devised and adopted. He sent his only begotten Son into the world. He had to come to take on him human nature, to align himself with us, to take our sins upon him, to be our new representative. We'd fallen in Adam. We need a new man to start a new humanity to save us. And the Son of God came down. He's the second Adam. He's the last man. The call upon him means that you believe that. That the Jesus who was put in the, in the manger in Bethlehem, the Jesus who was a carpenter, the Jesus who began to preach at the age of 30, the Jesus who died in weakness upon the cross and was buried and rose again is the everlasting and eternal Son of God, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father, substance of the very eternal substance. You believe that Jesus, that man, that carpenter, is the eternal Son of God. But that alone won't save you. You believe that he came into the world and did all that and endured that death upon the cross in order to save you, in order to take your sins and your guilt and your punishment upon himself. That God hath made him to be sin for you who knew no sin, that you might be made the righteousness of God in him. You believe that he's son of God and that he came to taste death for you and to bear the punishment, that the stripes that you deserve were delivered and put upon him. You look at him, you say he's died for me, I'll call out unto him, Christ receive me. Take me into the scope of your mighty salvation. I'm lost, I'm helpless. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. You call out unto him. Repent, says Peter, and be baptized every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus and to the remission of sins. And do that, he says, and you shall be saved. Joel was perfectly right. Whosoever calleth upon the name of the Lord, that's all you do. Your righteousness is as filthy rags. Your religiosity doesn't count at all. All the good you've ever done and all your marvelous idealism, you may sacrifice a great career, put, give all your money away and go and build a hospital, if you like, in the heart of Africa. That doesn't make you a Christian. There's only one way of being saved and that is in utter helplessness and hopelessness. To look unto him and to say, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed Be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. That's it. You cry out unto him. And if you do that, you shall be saved. What does that mean? Well, it means this. That you will know that all your sins are forgiven. That Christ really has borne the punishment. That God has forgiven you. That God has reconciled you unto himself in and through Christ. That you needn't fear death. You needn't fear the grave. You needn't fear the judgment. The Christ who's gone through it all is covering you. His righteousness is upon you. You are engrafted into him. You belong to him. You've become a child of God and an heir of God. And a joint heir with Christ. You'll be saved and you can know it. And you'll begin to rejoice with a joy unspeakable and full of glory. You see, these people cried out to Peter and the rest saying, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter replied saying, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus unto the remission of sins and you shall receive the Holy Ghost as we have. For the promise is unto you and unto your children and to as many as are far off and to as many as the Lord our God shall call. You do that, says Peter, and you shall become as we are. You'll have this amazing joy that is now thrilling the whole of our being. We are new men and you can become new men and women. You'll have a new life and a new start and a new hope. You'll become the very children of God. And all you do in order to become that and to receive such riches is to call upon the name of the Lord. Is this possible, says someone? Is this possible for me? I've lived a godless life. I've never thought about God. Christ meant nothing to me but an oath. Do you mean to tell me I've come into this service tonight that this is possible to me? My dear friend, I have every authority for saying so. The prophecy is this. Whosoever, and it's as wide as the universe, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It doesn't matter what nation you belong to. It doesn't matter what the color of your skin is. It doesn't matter what your antecedents are. It doesn't matter what your family was like, whether great or small, important or unimportant. It doesn't matter whether you're young or old. Didn't you notice it? He says here, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. You know, there are some people today who seem to think the gospel is only for young people. Thank God it has the same promise for the old. I don't care how old you are, nor how young you are. That's why I never have special services for young people. It's a denial of the gospel in a sense. It's for anybody, whosoever... And the middle-aged and the aged need it as much as the young. Perhaps more so because they're nearer the end. But it doesn't matter how old you are. You may have lived 80 years in sin and a slave of the devil. I'm addressing you. Come, call out to him. Even here and now, young or old, good or bad, moral or immoral, religious or irreligious, I care not. Whosoever calleth upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. Why am I so sure about it? Why is it I can invite anybody, a man or a woman, who may have sunk to the lowest depths of sin and iniquity, why can I say to you that you have as much chance as anybody else this second? On what authority do I do? it? Well, in this way, you see, salvation, as was shown on the day of Pentecost, does not depend in any respect whatsoever upon you and me. It is all in the Lord. It is he. It is what he has done. He gives it as a free gift. As this Holy Ghost was poured out freely, he gives his salvation freely. It's a gift without money and without price. All the fitness he requireth is to see You are in need of him. That's all. All that is necessary is that you call, that you see where you are, that you feel you're lost and helpless, and you cry out unto him to have mercy upon you. So I say that the past doesn't matter. Though you may have dismissed Christ and Christianity with oaths and cursing. And blasphemed it. If you see tonight your sin, your lost estate, you have nothing to do but to call upon the name of the Lord. And I assure you that immediately you will be received. You will be saved. Cry out unto him. Call upon him. Don't give yourself a moment's rest nor peace. Until you know that you're saved that he's received you, that your sins have been blotted out, that you're reconciled to God, and that you're destined for heaven and everlasting bliss.
1: Whosoever
0: calleth upon the name of the Lord shall be saved and safe eternally. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust Audio Library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.